Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Kamal Caruso, Chief Revenue Officer for HerMD and your host for today. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. I'm joined by our founder, Dr. Somi Javed, and Emma, a sexual health therapist and founder and owner of Emma Schmidt Sexual Health and Associates. Today, we're going to be talking about bad sex, why so many women settle, how to have the conversation with your partner, and how you can try to get on the road to better sex. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. Of course, I love, love, love being on this podcast. Oh, yeah, we love working with you. This makes my Friday just even more perfect. I couldn't be happier that it's Friday and then I get to chat with my two favorite ladies. So I love this. I know it's awesome. How lucky I am to have you as a partner so close in Cincinnati. Like this is so rare to have this. So I'm, um, it's pretty cool to keep collaborating in this way and educating the community. Well, I think it's fascinating because, you know, there's a study going on in our office right now, and they're looking at why we are so successful with our medications and treatments. And I firmly believe it's because of this multidisciplinary approach we take, right? Yeah. So I give them the medication or, you know, do the laser treatment, and then I get to send them right to you for all the other stuff. <laughs> so today we're talking about a really good topic, bad sex. Many of us have experienced it. And it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different women. I've experienced it as well. So pain, discomfort, fear of being hurt are some of the things that women feel when they're experiencing bad sex. And according to some research led by a feminist psychologist, Sarah McClelland from the University of Michigan, go blue, men and women imagined a very different low end of a sexual satisfaction scale. So female participants described the low end of the scale in extremely negative terms, like depressed, emotionally sad, pain, degradation, like such like horrible words. And they found no male participants use terms with this degree of negative affect. Mm -hmm. So Emma, like, why is it so much more emotional and negative for women? You know, so I was on another podcast that is uh, faith-based. And so I was doing this deep dive in this book called Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. And it was fantastic. And so I think a little bit of it comes from this, comes from the patriarchy, honestly. (laughs) Um, Back in the day, you know, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was this idea that men got to say the way that the way that women should be, right, somewhat enslaved, and the way that sex should be. It was for procreation and it was for their interest. And I think that there's this generational trauma that has just cycled through where women are the object and men get to take from women. And I know that's a big topic today, but I I firmly believe that that has been emotionally scarred us and our bodies. And so when women show up um, in my office and they're saying, man, I don't want it. I have absolutely no interest in it. Um, I feel expected to do this thing. I don't think that that's uncommon because I think it's a generational message that we've been given for thousands and thousands of years. And when women are free from that, when we do some healing through that, it's amazing how much they want sex and how much they desire it. But our brains have been conditioned to think my male counterpart deserves this. And yeah, of course, they, it's, it's good to interact together with, with our partners, but there's a level of expectancy that, that comes from a male counterpart where it's not the same 
the other way around, right? Like I can't even imagine a world where, where that is. Yeah. So I think that it's, it's a generational trauma that women have held in their bodies that bring up all these different emotions that men don't necessarily have. I also think it's um, perpetuated by providers. And, you know, we've talked about the gap in medications. There's so many more treatment options available for men for sexual dysfunction. It's all, it feels like it's all about women being a vessel and serving them. I remember the most off-putting conversation I had once with a urogynecologist who came to me and wanted to learn more about or excuse me, a urologist who came to me and, and he treated only men and he was having an issue with, you know, wanting to talk to the female partners. And I said, well, what's happening? And he's like, well, I'm building these beautiful penises and they act like they're 18 years old. He does penile implants. And he's like, and then they have to go home to a 70 year old vagina that's dry. And, 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 and that's the way he was training his patients to think too, like you have this 18 year old robo penis, you deserve so much better. And I was like, that's not what her MD is about. We're about empowering women about having them have an equal say in their sexual life. So I'm not training my women to be a receptacle for your patients. And so I couldn't believe that in 2020, I met him in 2020, that this is still going on in offices. And I went to a lecture where, you know, they talked about this and they're like, hey, the women shouldn't, you know, if sex has been off the table and all of a sudden a, a male partner gets treatment and all of a sudden there's a penis in the room, a discussion have to occur beforehand because that's not fair. And we know this, Emma, you and I, as talking to our female patients that a lot of times that doesn't happen. And so I think we've done a disservice to women as far as that goes as well in the medical field. Well, I think what you're speaking of um, and two is so, so important because I see so many clients, female clients who come and say, my husband or my partner wanted me to come to get fixed by you because I have low libido as if low libido is the worst thing that could possibly happen in anybody's life. And we've stigmatized it as if low libido is the problem. And that's not the case. Low libido is normal. It's just like, what do we do with that? I think that's part of the problem in that, when we are able to bring, and we're, we're describing this as if it's a heterosexual cisgender couple, right? Like that's what we're talking right. about. If um, the male counterpart is there, one of the things that I find really powerful is he also needs his own healing from the messages that how he was raised, how he was socially constructed in terms of his message of as being a man and what sexuality means. And I think sometimes for men who show up and say like, wow, I never thought about like how my generational have come forward and given me these messages of when I'm married, then I get all the sex that I want from you. And they have to also be, be willing to change their script to meet their partner. And so I think that there's a level of when men can show up and say, I have to do my own work too. And I have to be able to look at what has contributed to my own messaging to show up for my partner. The healing that happens between a relationship is so powerful, but that's the hard part too, is, um, having the, the two meet together. And I tease that out in my office as well, because I don't want to treat women just so they can serve their partners, whether it's a male partner, whether it's a female partner. And that's where we talk about what do you want? Does your low sex drive bother you, right? Because that's part of the whole HSDD or hypoactive sexual des desire diagnosis is that it has to be distressing to them, right? If, it's, if they're just doing it for someone else, then we have to work on that. 
But I want them to empower themselves and say, no, it's bothering me too, if it is, and that I'm also seeking treatment and I want this for myself as well. And I think that's very important in giving women that voice and that safe space. And that's where the work with you comes in, you know, so importantly, so that they're able to find that voice. Oftentimes, Emma, they even say to me, I don't even know how to talk to him about this because, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings or I love him, but I don't want him to take it personally. And this gets back into some of what Mani was bringing up in the beginning was, you know, how do women talk about when something their partner is doing doesn't feel nice or doesn't turn them on or is actually off-putting to them? And the one example that's coming to mind for me is a patient whose husband liked to talk dirty in bed. And, you know, some women like that and she found it very degrading. She found it off-putting. She said the sex was good, but when she heard those messages, She said that it hurt her confidence and she didn't feel like his partner or his equal. And I believe I sent her to you too. I don't know if she ever found her way. But so, you know, even simple things like that beyond our body language, but even the words we choose with our lovers can make such an impact, right? Because that can turn a woman off. So what would you do in that instance, Emma? Like how do they broach that topic with their partners in the bedroom? How do you coach that? The thing that's immediately coming up for me is one type of language or one type of interaction that could work for one partner doesn't necessarily mean that it's cookie cutter for the next partner. That's why conversation and communication is so vital. But the piece that is coming up for me too is that when her partner does that, what is coming up for her? Where where does any of that messaging actually originate from? Why does she feel the way that she does? So I want to understand that piece, that part of it for her. And then I want to understand it from his side. What is it that turns you on about that? Where did that come from? It all comes and originates from somewhere. And so I think the more curious we can be about our partner and the way that they interact sexually, the more informed we could be. You know, I had um, this one situation where there was a partner who was really into BDSM, but hadn't told his female counterpart about it. And the female counterpart um, had been sexually assaulted and she had never disclosed this to him. So I met with them individually and I was like, we got to talk about this, right? Because he wanted to start incorporating this more hardcore BDSM and that would have been incredibly triggering for her, right? And that's why this conversation is so important and understanding our partner and why they feel and experience the way that they they do. So the way to communicate, I think, is just being curious, but I know that that can be really hard and embarrassing and vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable, right? So coming into something like therapy, I think can be really helpful to have that guide and I can make it uncomfortable and bring up all the awkward conversations for you. But if you can take a step back and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something. When do you have time? Let's sit down and do it and be intentional about it versus doing it in a fight. That's when it usually happens is we're arguing about it. And then I'm going to throw out these daggers or it just doesn't get brought up and you're continuing to have this type of sex that you don't want. And then resistance starts to happen. And then we start to avoid sex and our partner doesn't understand. So if you're able to say, okay, what, what makes it uncomfortable for me to talk about sex? What makes it, uh, what's holding me back from doing it? And how can I challenge myself to bring it up to my partner? Do we need a third person like um, a therapist? Or can we just rip the bandaid off and say, this is going to be uncomfortable, but we got to talk about this so that we can have more fulfilling and satisfying sex. 
So Emma, my other question is along these same lines. So I have patients who will say, Dr. Javade, he's doing something that is uncomfortable or doesn't feel pleasant, not not necessarily dyspronia or sexual pain. And they they crack up, they crack me up because they're like, Dr. Javade, I'm making eye contact. I'm like shifting my body. I'm trying to move. And he's still not getting the hint. And they fear that if they verbalize it during the act that he'll either lose his erection or they'll just stop altogether. So do you have um, any suggestions on nonverbal cues or when they're actually in the act or do you think it just needs to occur as a conversation before or after? Yeah, you know, I think afterwards saying, hey, when you do this thing, it bothers me or it doesn't feel that great. Is there a way that I can tell you where we still stay in the moment, right? And sometimes for people, it's taking it as it is, just saying, hey, uh, that doesn't feel good. Let's switch it up a bit. And that's totally fine. Both partners feel confident in that and they can keep getting the mood. If one person loses their erection, let's just slow everything down and, you know, just start stimulating the penis a little bit more or, you know, work on the erogenous zones. Some people have keywords, like um, somewhat like safe words, but they're, they're other words. So if I say strawberry or you know it could be something more sexual than that that you know to shift your body or you know like that there's still a word that keeps it erotic for us and exciting and then there are body experiences so there was this one person who said we rub elbows when something when we're we're wanting something or not wanting something and that that was like a cue that just signaled but it wasn't a verbal process thing So I'm not saying like if you are going to communicate it during sex verbally, it doesn't need to be a full on blown out conversation where you're being curious and you're asking a lot of questions. It can just be like, hey, can you move a little bit to the left? That feels good. Or like, hey, this position's not feeling good. Or like, you know, maybe even being a little bit more dominant where you you switch him or you, um, well, it sounds like maybe she was trying to do that. Maybe you exit and then try and throw him into a different position that you might like. So there's this idea of dominant and submissive that a lot of us think of BDSM, but all of us are in a dominant or submissive experience during a sexual act. And so how can I maybe uh, go into that uh, dominant role and, and move my partner in the way that I want? And then the other thing that I get a lot is how do I even start with, with counseling? So a lot, and I tell them they can start either way. A lot of them are like, can I start alone if my partner doesn't want to? Is your preference that they start together? I mean, what do you tell them or is it individualized based on their relationship? So I say, if they are curious about if they should start alone or together, come in alone and then have the therapist just walk through that process with you to see how they might assess for if it could be, if it should be individual couples or maybe even both that they should come in individually, but also as a couple. So typically I hear this all the time where they'll say, you know, Dr. Javake gave me your, your name like six months or two years ago and I'm now <laughs> making the leap. And, and they're like, uh, I, I decided to do it. This is really hard for me. I hear this all the time. And so one of the things that's really, really important to us is that we make this experience as comfortable as possible. And I think any therapist would, would want that as well. Um, so we try and provide a lot of information on our website around what therapy is going to look like, how to engage. We never have sex with our clients, which some people think happens. <laughs> oh my God. Um, it's all talk therapy. And we really just try and take it at your own pace, really. And we're here as a guide for you. And we're just, we're happy to be along the journey with you. So I would say, one, just dive into it. Because what we see is that a lot of people wait until they're at the end of the rope. And sometimes it's a lot of backtracking. So if you can get on the forefront of it, you're probably going to do less therapy than if you continue to wait until it 
you know, you're at your breaking point too. So be proactive about it. And we're here to try and make this process as comfortable as possible for you and then help assess and guide what the next direction should be. It's hard taking on like the different roles and figuring out how to talk to your partner about sex or things that you don't like. What if your partner is just bad in bed? I think women have been socialized to, you know, not speak up. And But what if it's just like a total lack of skill? Have you watched Ginny and Georgia? No. Oh. What is it? I'm write it down. First of all, you, gotta, you have to watch this show. You have to watch it, Emma. Okay. It's on Netflix. Ginny and Georgia, it's about a mom and a daughter. The mom had the daughter very young. The daughter's 15 now. The mom is 30. But in the first episode, one of the teenagers has sex. And it is over and done with in like, I don't know, 45 seconds, maybe the entire act. And he got off. He was like, you know, fine. And she just sat there and really unsatisfied, but like pretended it was kind of fine. And then when asked about it later, was like, yeah, I finished, like I finished whatever. I mean, I've experienced that (laughs) and not said anything. And I think a lot of people have. So what do you do when your partner is just like bad in bed? So I'll hear this where same thing. I think there's a social construct where women have been silenced and that uh, we're just there for the male's enjoyment, our male counterpart. And that, you know, we hear this all the time where, okay, well, he finished, but what about me? So there's a bit of how do we empower ourselves? How do we keep empowering each other to speak up for our own sexual health, to advocate for our own sexual health and what we want? So some of it is trying to advocate for, for ourselves in that relationship. And also, so this is where it gets a little challenging because it depends on what phase of the relationship is this? Was this, you know, the first night that you're with this person? Do you, you know, do you then debrief the whole thing, you know, afterwards? Probably (laughs) not, you know, like realistically, but you take note of like, oh, okay, well, what could be different next time? How could I ask for my need? What did I want that was, that didn't happen? So being curious about that, but you know, if it's a relationship where you feel more vulnerable to express yourself too, I think being able to say, hey, I would love to mix it up or I would love to have an exploratory session where we, you know, do some educational experience. So you might like put on a video that says like, hey, try some of these things. And as you're watching it, you're also doing it with your partner. The app Rosie has some really cool guidance on just like putting it on and then guiding through the whole sexual situation. So you could present it as a, hey, do you want to do this sexy exploration exercise with me so that it's not so blunt and like, you really suck at sex. We got to do something about this. But you could, you know, reframe it in a way of, do you want to do this exciting exercise with me where we try out some other things or, you know, we elongate the sexual situation and we take like an hour to just, to just be with each other. But I think the most important piece is one, trying to figure out what do I want that's not there? How do I want things different? And how do I advocate for my own sexual needs too, which is incredibly hard for most women. So, you know, the one thing I did tell uh, Monty about that scene that I did appreciate is that I felt like it was the most real scene I had ever, ever witnessed on TV of 
teenagers having intercourse for the first time because, you know, you see like the movie Twilight and it's like this stuff that's going on for a very long time and they know exactly how to touch each other. And so the awkwardness, the quickness of it, the complete lack of foreplay or even any afterwards, any type of connection or speaking about it, it was like, bye, see you at school tomorrow. You know, it was <laughs> like, okay, that looks like, you know, uh, two 15 or 16 year olds and, and what would happen. But I think, you know, we have this dichotomy too of I of tempering expectation. And so Emma, we're talking about on one hand, how women are taught that we're supposed to be, or, you know, it's been built into us that we're supposed to serve men and, you know, we don't talk about our own pleasure. And then we have movies like Fifty Shades of Grey and like, what was the other show that we were watching with Tully, um, Firefly Lane. And so where women are having this hot sex and they're having an orgasm within two minutes. And, and so I have women who come in who may not have sexual dysfunction. They want sexual enhancement and they're like, I want you to make my sex life like that. And so it's like, uh, wait, where is this message coming from? You know, so how do you deal with that, Emma, in your office where, you know, they're not thrilled with their partner? They were fine until they saw this movie and they're like, well, I want that. Yeah. Uh, Did you all watch the new documentary Childhood 2.0? No. No, but I'm going to write it down. It's terrifying. So just watch out. Okay. So one of the things that they show are that, um, you know, sexting is just an, a normal occurring thing with our kids these days. But also it's if you don't provide these things to the male counterpart, um, to your male partner, not even partner, just like a person, then you're going to be basically shamed and they'll create all these lies. And so a lot of even like nine-year-old girls are being bullied into sending nudes and then all of a sudden everybody gets blasted these nudes from people and they like create these documentary or documents of like all the nudes they've collected. So these girls are saying, we're trying to figure out how to be good for these guys and how to make sure that we're liked by them or accepted by them because that's important to us and our self-worth. And the way that they find that is through porn. And they were talking about that. Everybody watches porn. It's no big deal. It's just like normal, like going to math class. It's like, And that's how they're learning their sex education, right? Like that's something that a lot of us know. And in most of my sexual history assessments that I do with my clients, that's where they're learning how to perform and have sexual interactions. So just like what you're saying too, with these other shows, I think we have a false expectation of what sex is supposed to be like. We start performing, we start adjusting our bodies. I remember one gynecologist said, it might've been you, I can't remember, that um, she never saw anybody shaving or waxing their vulvas until porn started to become a bigger thing and everybody was then like changing. And so I think that there's a level of expectations and trying to meet needs, um, maybe for ourselves, but definitely for our counterpart. How do we have this really exciting sexual situation that is arousing to us? And maybe we see a scene like Bridgerton where you know, everybody's like, Hey, wake your partner up. You got to have sex now. Yeah. Uh, but how realistic is what's happening and what's been, you know, has like 20 different takes, you know, for them to have this great experience versus reality and our bodies needing to warm up and our partners needing to engage with us in a certain way and desires being right on, on track. So this is a very long winded answer, but it, it all comes down to how do you feel desire how do you feel arousal? A lot of times for women, arousal comes before desire, meaning you got to get into the situation before your desire even starts to come, before you even want sex. 
So you, you kind of have to do a little play on what do I want? What feels erotic to me? What feels exciting to me? What fantasies do I have? And how do I incorporate that into my life? But also understanding the difference between performance sex on TV and reality and people losing their erections and that's fine. And like, what do we do about that? It's a little bit of like, what is your fantasy? What is erotic for you? How do you communicate that to your partner? But also challenging that against expectations and what you're seeing in the media. No, and I definitely, you know, when I talk to them too, it's about tempering expectations because I'm like, I can definitely get you, you know, increased number of sexually satisfying events. I can help you increase your desire. But I said, if your sex life was never Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm not going to get you back there. Like you're going to have to figure that out on your own because if that's what you're coming in for, you know, and so they appreciate the honesty and, and they get it. But I definitely, I have another instance where I do think it was completely, you know, we talk about partner skill and partner sometimes having a detrimental effect on arousal and desire. And I worked with this patient forever. She had low desire and she said she was in love with her partner. I was making sure, you know, she was in a safe relationship. And so I'm trying all the different medications. I have her hormonal levels optimal. She has no pain. And so I finally don't see her for a while and she pops back in and, you know, six months later, I'm like, what, what's happening? How's it going? She's like, oh my God, I'm having the best sex of my life. It's so amazing. I'm like, oh my God, what finally worked? Like what, what, the tool I gave you, the medicine? And she's like, oh girl, I got a new partner. Like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I'm like, obviously, and she just said it was nothing against him. It was just their sexual chemistry. She said it was just never there. And she had tried communicating with him. This was a woman who was very open. And it just, she said they just never clicked, even though emotionally she did love him. And so I I think sometimes I I do give patients, you know, that nod or that appreciation that, yeah, sometimes it can be very different with each partner. So I have seen that. And that's the story that comes to mind when I think about that. I I love that. And I think too, being able to recognize what are your priorities? What is important to you about a relationship? Because we can meet two different people saying, we feel like we need to be having all the sex, but we're not interested. And and so I say like, well, don't have sex. And if you're not interested in it on both partners and they're like, oh, okay, that's great. And so maybe they have a sexless marriage because that's what they're interested in. But if sex is really important to you and that makes you feel really close to your partner, but you're not engaged, you're not having that and you're not feeling connected, maybe it is that it's not the right partner for you if you're going to be miserable or if you're going to constantly be feeling rejected by your partner. Does this relationship still make sense for you if you're not able to get those needs met? And I will say too, though, You're not going to die if you don't have sex and we can always work on that partnership, but there has to be a willingness to on both sides to change and move and grow. And there is a huge part of the relationship that does build into that other intimacy. But for some people, if that's lacking to a a certain degree, it it just might not be the, the right relationship anymore. Right. And so what do you do, Emma, if your partner, like piggybacking off of that, if you are speaking with your partner and have built up that courage to talk to them about things you like, things you don't, you know, and go having that conversation with them and they're just resistant. I feel like some partners might just get very defensive or, you know, embarrassed, right? So this is something that I see all the time in, mm-hmm. in my office. And so you'll hear me say this. Sometimes I think 
my answers can just be summed up with be curious. Uh, so I would want you to be curious around like, what, why am I getting defensive right now? Where is that coming from? What messages are coming up for me around why I think my partner is even trying to talk to me? So sometimes we have this narrative of my partner only wants sex from me. That's the only thing that they want. I, I have no other purpose in my partner's life except for that, where they're saying to like, well, you don't send me love notes or I've asked you for years to help me or like go on dates with me, but you're not doing that. And so now you're coming to me and saying, you want to have a sex conversation with me. And now I just feel like I am an object in your life. And so I hear that over and over and over again, that it feels like you're only wanting to have this conversation with me because that's my only need in our relationship. So I would want to explore more about why are you feeling defensive? What's that resistance about a lot of people will also say this wasn't something that we were allowed to talk about growing up. It's not something we just do it, just like get it done. Don't talk about it and just move on. And that's how you have a 20 year relationship, never having talked about sex and having bad sex because you're not talking about it. So being able to understand too your own sexual history, where these messages came up, what's being triggered in your body. What is it like for your partner to even ask? What is it like for you to even go and ask your partner So that's where I come from is just being really curious, understanding what's coming up for your body. Where did any of this come from? But that resistance is really, really normal. And that's where the more information you have, the more than you can tackle trying to move through that resistance. But if you keep avoiding it, you're only going to stay and even create more of a wedge in that sexual relationship. So what do you do if you're the partner who's on like the receiving end of that resistance? Is there a certain language they can use to kind of soften the blow for lack of better words. So what I would do is it's called the listener speaker exercise where the person who's presenting the information. So um, let's say it's the guy saying, Hey, I really want to have this conversation with you. So what you're doing is you're speaking from I statement. So this is how I feel. This is my experience. Here's my lane. I'm not blaming or pointing fingers or criticizing, uh, making fun of, I'm not doing any of that stuff. The person who's listening, what I like them to do is just sit back, be curious, validate, empathize. So if you can both be in a conversation where we're going to say like, hey, I need to talk to you about something. I want to implement this listener speaker skill while we talk about that. I think the conversation can go, you know, really well. But the person who's presenting, if they're speaking and they're coming up against some resistance or like some defensiveness, I would even say, hey, I don't mean any like maliciousness from this or like ill intent. I, I really care about you, you know, like think about like, how are you feeling and and what do you feel about this person and how you want to connect with them? A lot of times though, because of our nervousness or we feel that defensiveness, we just start going for the gut because it makes us feel better. But if you can stay in that soft space of, I care about you. I miss this. I miss what we used to have together not because of necessarily just to get off, but because of the connection that I have with you and being close. And I feel like we're two ships passing in the night now, or I feel like we're not prioritizing us as a relationship. So if you can understand even your own emotions and to be able to express that, that usually comes off as softer than just coming out and saying, when are we going to have more sex? Or you, I feel rejected by you or, you know, like something that feels harsher And even say, you know, um, I can feel the defensiveness in you, or I can feel the resistance. And I just want to understand more. So being curious around that, like, if they're saying like, no, get away from me, I don't want any of that, go find somebody else to have sex with. 
uh, just continue to be curious. Like, can you tell me more about why that is for you? And maybe they keep resisting, but if you remain in that place of being curious and empathetic and validating towards what they're saying, it, it usually goes well, or saying, Hey, I would really like to talk to somebody to help us um, just work through some of this. But honestly, it's really, really, really challenging if you're coming up against someone who is what we call stonewalling you. Mm-hmm. So stonewalling is you're trying to talk to them and they just shut you off and they're, they have no interest in having any conversation. That is not what a healthy partnership looks like. And you're just going to keep decreasing your intimacy and vulnerability and it. It usually doesn't go well. So try and be open and try and yeah, invite that conversation if you're the one being resistant. I think part of it too is understanding the difference between partners and understanding your own sexuality independent of your partner and then just the fundamental differences between men and women. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about desire and arousal, but, you know, there's also this orgasm gap that exists that I have so many women who come to me and think something's wrong because they can't orgasm, you know, during intercourse. And when I explain to them that that number is less than 30%, or they're not multi-orgasmic, you know, they're concerned that there's something wrong with their relationship or there's they're something wrong with them or there's something wrong with their partner. And when women feel safe in a relationship, we're much more likely to orgasm with a known partner than we are in a one-night stand. We're more likely to orgasm ourselves because we know our body, you know, within four to 10 minutes um, than we are with a partner. And I think just educating patients and women and men about just fundamental differences, I think really calms people down. It empowers them. It helps them understand. So then they know that they're not trying to fix something that isn't broken and maybe help them understand why they're not having an orgasm in two minutes like they're seeing on TV when they're with a partner. I think just, like I said, tempering expectations, educating patients, giving them that knowledge so that they understand, I think, frees them of a lot of doubt that they may have in the bedroom. A hundred percent. And one of the things that I think you're speaking to, too, around the desire that Emily Nagalski talks about in her book, Come As You Are, talks about responsive desire versus spontaneous desire. And a lot of times the male counterpart we find has more spontaneous desire, meaning they can just show up in a room and say, hey, I'm ready to go where a lot of times women need more of that responsive desire. So responsive desire is I'm not complete. I'm not ready just on the spot. I need something to respond to. So I need to have quality conversation or let's take a bath together, or let's do a massage or something to get me in, to get my body aroused and and wake up. Right. And so a lot of times what happens though, is we think because my desire doesn't match my partner, then I must not want sex. But it, a lot of times it's because our partner's not pursuing us the way that our body actually needs. And so, so many women think, I just don't want sex. But a lot of times it's because you're not being pursued in the way that actually works for you. I love that. I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, how many men actually know, or and women as well, spontaneous desire versus responsive desire I think that in and of itself is extremely helpful to understand those two things. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a funny little story about that, <laughs> um, which I'm going to share. And I'm you two are the brave women who, you know, we did a whole podcast with Emma about her journey. And then Komel is like sp- spoken up about this stuff. So I was asking the staff for another one of our mod massage candles. They're so good. And, you know, I love massage and it calms me down. And and that's the way I like to respond to my partner. And so I'm asking for like another candle. And Kathy was like, how many more candles does Javade need to go through? And so (laughs) 
two weekends ago, you know, my husband and I, it's like Saturday morning, seven o'clock in the morning. Okay. And he lights the candle. So I know what's going to happen. He's like getting the room ready and he's about to lock the door and in walks our 11 year old. And she's like, Oh my God, dad, you are so gross. And I was like, what, what's wrong? Fully clothed. Nothing is happening yet. And she goes, I know what that mod massage candle means. She's like, my God, dad, you're going to die of cardiac arrest. You two are too old to have sex. (laughs) (laughs) So then she like literally climbs into bed with us and she's like, I'm going to stay here on purpose. And I was like, that's fine, Maya. So, you know, she lays down with us, she leaves and he looks at me and I go, yeah, not happening. I was like, I'm pretty much done. I've been told that I'm too geriatric to have sex. And my child now knows what this scandal means. <laughs> Apparently, you know, responsive desire is a, is a big, you know, part of our relationship. But I was dying when you just said that. I was like, yep. <laughs> that can be one of the biggest challenges are having kids in the house. And I remember uh, we were, we're like, we had just had our Maya. So uh, our Maya is three and we had the monitor and we're like, let's try the, So it would have been like the first time we were trying to have sex after having her, which was probably like seven months later. And, you know, you're getting in the mood and you're trying to like have that arousal to then be able to have the desire. And by golly, like every five minutes she's crying. It's like such a pillar of desire um, that <laughs> so we women go through. And then eventually it's like, why try anymore? Like, the kids are going to come in or whatever. And so just knowing that is reality. So you sharing that story, that's, that's reality that happens. And it can be so hard to regain that. Like, let's try it again, because your body gets excited, and then it kills it. And so this, this researcher, Rosemary Basson talked about that female desire and arousal so different than male desire. And back with uh, Masters and Johnson, they said that uh, desire and arousal and orgasm is very linear. So you have desire, then you have arousal, then you have excitement, then you have orgasm, plateau, and then you have refractory, meaning like uh, the time spent between being able to engage in sex again. And Rosemary Basson said, that's not how women work. Uh, It's more of like a scribble (laughs) of like, I can have arousal and then desire, and then I hear a kid, and then it all starts over again. Or I think about my grocery list, and then it all starts over again, and you have to re-engage. And the, you know, like all of my sensations just like went back to to null, like went back to zero. And so realizing that for women in that way too, it's very different. So your husband might have said like, oh, I could keep going, like just kick her out or like (laughs) not a chance. Like my mind will not get back there. And so just recognizing that that's a difference too, between a lot of men and women that gets in the way that's, I mean, that is a challenge for a lot of people. Well, so, and that's the other thing I wanted to bring up then, because, you know, we have all of these erectile dysfunction medications, right? That are, there are the daily, but they're mostly a lot of them are on demand, meaning they take it, they time it, how long, however long it's going to take. And they have no problem being on a date, going into bathroom, popping a pill. And so, you know, there's a couple of options for women, but the one that's on demand is an injection. And I had this patient who was so excited because she didn't want to wait for a daily medication to take effect. She want, she was like, you know, you, you inject yourself at least 45 minutes before you want to want to have sex with Vilesi. And so she injected herself and then she was like, already, you know, and then literally one of her kids came into the bedroom mm. sick puked in the bed. She's running around because she said her vagina is woke and she wants to have sex, but then she's dealing with puke. And so she cleans up the puke, 
gets the kid back to bed. Then the dog comes in, starts eating some of the puke that she hadn't gotten to. And then she's trying to do laundry. And so basically <laughs> she goes, Dr. Gervais, I wasted, I wasted my injection because by the time I did all that, then I fell asleep and then I woke up and then I was not in the mood anymore. And so I want to talk to you about this, Emma, about how men have very little issue for the most part of, you know, planning sex or having to take a medication to be able to perform if they have that issue. But for women, I will tell you time and time again, they will choose the daily option, Addy, the nightly option that has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to have intercourse that night. That's just, you take it every night. But when I bring up this timed option, even though they won't have to wait, you know, six to eight weeks for it to work, they decline it. Number one, because they don't want an injection. But number two, they say it's too much pressure. Like it's another thing that I have to plan. I don't want that. Do, what are your thoughts on that on, on men versus women? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think the pressure thing is huge for women. And I know that I've been seeing some women who say, I don't want it to be scheduled because then I think about it all day long and it creates so much anxiety uh, to the point that they become sick. And then they're like, they create some kind of avoidance uh, for that night. So I can totally understand why Valisi would feel like pressure to um, then have like be on the spot. Right. But honestly, I hear that with men too, and their anxiety can ramp up so much that the Viagra doesn't work because their anxiety has actually taken over. So I actually can understand from both sides if there's an anxiety component there, but exactly what you're saying with this story, I think it's so perfect because it's like, I don't want to waste, you know, a $200 pill or like this injectable when, you know, like life feels crazy and chaotic. And so Addie just feels like a better option because it's daily. And then I don't feel the expectation of sex then. Um, even though her vulva was woke, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you just don't know. I, I love that so much because I understand. Like, I right? love it. Yeah, it's just so there's so much expectation and pressure, and so I get it. Having something that's that's more consistent probably feels better. I just like the idea of that option um, because it's so quickly right. it works so quick. Yeah, I'm curious for you though um, because I've gotten this question before. Well, I guess I'm curious too, what percentage of women feel the effects of Vilesi versus, you know, with Addy? I know that before it was like 50-50. Can you talk a little bit about the difference that you experience with your your patients? My numbers are more skewed because I have such a high percentage of sexual dysfunction patients as opposed to a normal or a regular gynecologist. But I have a really high responder rate to Addy. I'd say I'm closer to, I think in the published literature, it was about 60%. There are more studies going on now, including in our office. Um, I'm definitely over 70%. I'd say closer to 75 But it's because I co-treat with counseling with you. Um, If there's pain, they're at pelvic floor physical therapy. They are also getting testosterone in a lot of instances, right? Because we know that the the etiology of the low sex drive may be multifactorial. With Vilesi, I have treated a couple hundred patients versus thousands on Addy, but there's also a four-year gap. So a lot of women don't want the Vilesi just because of the injection or the planning. But for a lot of women who are like, hey, I'm having a anniversary trip. We've not had sex. I I need you to give me something now. It's a great choice for women who don't want to wait. And so I have yet to see Vilesi fail in anyone as far as not helping them with desire. 
It doesn't work as well with decreasing the distress associated with your sex life not being where it wants to be. So for women who have longstanding issues with and have a lot of distress about their sex life, I don't believe it works as well with that. But the nausea is a huge issue with Vilesi. Really? Yeah. So it's about 30 to 35% of women experience nausea. But just like birth control or any other medication, the more you take it, the nausea improves, both clinically with my patients, but also in the trials, they showed that. But yeah, I had one patient, she had the best story. So she ended up vomiting from her injection. But she came back and wanted refills. She said, the first time I didn't end up having sex because the need to throw up was was greater than the need to have sex. She goes, but it felt so good because it affects arousal as well. She was like, I was willing to do it again. And so she did. <laughs> and the second time she said the nausea was much more mild. She didn't vomit. And so I'll sometimes also tell them, you know, vitamin B6 is used to, uh, it's a natural anti-nausea, anti-emetic. And so I'll tell them, hey, just take your B6 when you're doing the Vilesi. And for a lot of the patients, that's helped mitigate that nausea. And then there's other, you know, issues. People with high blood pressure or cardiovascular problems cannot take Vilesi because it can raise an issue. So when people are asking me, how do I pick? It's, you know, patient preference, their medical history, and then obviously their expectation and how quickly they want to get back to baseline. For couples who want to have better sex and they're both open to it, they've had the talk, they want to spice things up or try some new things. What are some of the things that you love to recommend your patients? So there are a couple of different things. If they're both open to it and they're, they feel safe in the relationship and they both want to spice things up, so we're not talking about sexual dysfunction, we're just talking about truly spicing things up. I will recommend books. So there is a cool thing that they can try called the 30-Day Sex Challenge. And so this is really meant for busy people who just don't find the time to connect. So the commitment you make to each other is that no matter what, we're going to have sex for the next 30 days. So sometimes it's going to be a long session with foreplay. Sometimes it's just going to be a quick exchange. But what it does is it kind of eliminates the stress behind it and trying to make each session so special and learning how to, even when you're stressed from work or you have young children, you just figure it out. You know, couples will come back and say, yeah, sometimes the sex wasn't great, but what it did was create this intimacy between us and allowed us to say, okay, yeah, that was bad sex and it's okay. But the next day we might've had mind blowing sex. And so... I love that. Different lubricants, if patients are saying it doesn't feel great, you know, I love Uber Lube. Um, lubricants can make it a lot more pleasurable for both parties. There's some arousal products that I love out there. Rosebud Woman has some great arousal serum. Wave makes a great arousal serum. So I, I actually have samples. I'll hand them to patients and say, you know, there are minimal studies, but for some patients it feels great. It's not going to harm you. It has a potent vasodilator, meaning it increases blood flow to the genitalia. Dame products, there are some great vibrators that are out there that can be used solo, that can be used during sex, that some are waterproof. So I tell them to change up location, positions, make it exciting. Meet Rosie. You know, the Rosie app has saucy stories that they can engage in. If both parties are open to, you know, watching porn together, if that's something they want to do, I'm old fashioned, the good old book, the Kama Sutra, you know, and introducing patients to different sexual positions and changing things up. So definitely 
creating this intimacy and discovering new things about each other can be very arousing for couples and to do things in a different way or even in a different place. I, I find telling a couple to have a date night out, by the time they get home and they have the kids and the dogs, a lot of times their belly is full of wine, they're too tired for sex, right? Or our great meal has already released all the neurotransmitters we're going to get from good sex. So I'll tell them to book a hotel room, it's been harder during COVID, have sex and then go out. They tend to have better sex and it's not in their house. So they feel like they're on a mini vacation. Um, so just even changing up location can help. And then I also tell them if they're open to it, role play, you know, just introducing variety and changing things up. So introducing new tools, new methods, new spaces, different lubricants. That's how I recommend spicing things up. Those are all really good records. <laughs> That's a long list. Well, that is good. Emma, love having a Friday where I get to speak with you guys. Thank you so much and for the work that you do and helping my patients. And that's why I think our refill rates and our success rates are so much higher because we kind of have this multidisciplinary approach between the two of us. So thank you, darling, for everything that you do. Yeah, thank you too. This is fun. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female-forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMD Health and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you'd like to share your sexual health story, you can reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com.